Section 2 of G.K. Chesterton in the British Review. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. G.K. Chesterton in the British Review by G.K. Chesterton. The Exclusiveness of Journalists most of us especially most of us who are journalists have realized by this time that the newspaper makes its appeal to a very narrow circle if my fellow journalists prefer me to say a very select circle i will do so anyhow the newspaper is not any of the things which it is generally denounced for being particularly in the newspaper it is not the creation of democracy it is not the mental pablum of the masses why can't they say pasture it is not specially suited to the man in the street any more than to the man in the forest or the man in the mountains and above all it is not suited to the average of mankind counted anyway up or down or back or forwards or zigzag or roundabout or by any other method by which one could come to the totality of a body of separate figures. It is not free speech. It is something much more like a secret language, especially the sort of secret language that is invented by children. Consider that the human multitude consists of many generations of two sexes, though this is denied by some. Of every age and instant, from the cradle to the grave, of every kind of color and race including some between whom it requires the whole violent strength of the most vivid christianity to overcome a bodily abhorrence and then compare the popularity of the most popular newspaper with the popularity of almost anything else take the chance you would have among all those cross currents of contrast with nothing but a newspaper and compare it with the chance you would have with almost any of the older institutions of human pleasure. Compare it with the chance you would have with a fairy tale, or a brass band, or a hymn, or a toast, or a curse, or even a smoking-room story. I am fairly certain you would find that the language of the modern newspaper was the most limited of human languages, the most unintelligible of human languages, and therefore I need hardly say, the most aristocratic. I have spoken of an average, therefore I will really take average examples. I will not ransack the rest of the press for the infinite riches of example or coincidence which it contains. I will take one page of the Star, November 11, 1913, which I have just opened as an excuse for putting off the duty of writing this article. I also opened it to find out whether it was really true that the only political idealism left in England is now to be found on the stock exchange. It seems to be a fact, though a queer fact. But I take these two or three headlines quite accidentally and fairly from the page at which I happen to be staring. They are all within something like six inches of each other. I ask if there was ever a language less understanded of the people, a language more certain to be misunderstood by anybody who happened to be a little older, or a little younger, or a little less or a little more educated, 
or a little strange to the society, or a little set in the habits of sex or trade, than the secret language of the newspaper. I take first the headline, More Lightning Strikes at London Music Halls. I pass over for the moment the fascinating and philosophical question of the phrase music hall. Say the same two words in almost any other language in Europe, and it may mean a place where Bach and Grieg are performed in a profound and classical silence. But we will, as I say, pass that. More lightning strikes at London music halls. My grandfather or great-grandfather, your grandson or great-grandson, would almost certainly read those English words as meaning more music halls in London have been struck by lightning. Before the flying Argo fades away, I hasten to say that it does not mean this. It means that a number of poor men have remembered that they are free men and had the sense to assert it suddenly. That is what is meant by lightning. It is an adjective, but only a very narrow circle of the initiated could possibly guess it was. Just above these words appears in yet larger letters the simple statement, Down fiddles. Consider how slight a separation from the slang of newspapers would be needed to make even that mean three or four different things. It might mean that a person named Down was practicing the violin. It might mean that a cargo of very valuable violins had arrived from County Down. It might mean that some haughty aristocrat like Tolstoy, who seems to have thought music immoral, had said, Down, fiddles! As another aristocrat might say, Down, Fido! Exactly how large a proportion of what I mean by the democracy, the human family on this earth, would be certain to find among all these meanings the meaning that was meant. How many men, white, black, and yellow, how many old men, how many women, how many children, how many tramps, how many monks, how many men soaked in some art or hobby, would be certain to know that down fiddles was a joke founded on down tools, and that down tools is a political abbreviation for throw down your tools and do no more work till your demands are granted. Now those two journalistic phrases are exactly one above the other, and occupy no more than the space of three penny stamps. I could roam all over the page, the page I have accidentally opened, for illustrations of the same thing. The paragraph just above is headed, Richie Beat Cross. It might mean anything. It might be the full name of some particular gentleman. It might mean that a Mr. Richie Beat was cross. It might mean that a Mr. Richie had been beaten until he was cross. Take away the key of the closest contemporary knowledge, and that the knowledge of a very narrow circle, and the sentence is untranslatable and unintelligible, in a sense that the darkest Greek or the densest Latin have never been through all their three thousand years. It is the obvious answer to say that the daily paper is meant to be daily. Everyone, it will be said, understands it on Monday, and it is more lost than the lost books of Tacitus on Tuesday. I do not think this answer has the key to the strange secret language of journalism, 
I am a member of the public. I am as daily as anybody else, whom God makes every morning and strikes down every night. I am as much everybody as anybody. And I here confess that even when I could believe the whole of a newspaper, I could only understand about an eighth of it. I went swiftly to my own scrap of slang, to my own secret language, poets or political idealism, or news of small nations, or whatever it might be. I passed the solid columns about railways or the Royal Society as I passed the solid columns of some colonnade I paced in a boyish excitement. I think I should always have understood the idea of down tools, even in the form of down fiddles, or down stethoscopes, or down curling tongs, or whatever it might be. But that is because I always believed in the strike, the true Christian weapon of revolt, since it contrives at one blow to respect property and to scorn it. But even then, the very next paragraph might puzzle me. The Ritchie, who beat Cross, might still beat me. It seems likely, moreover, that a certain abruptness in this use of words is connected with the specialism of which I speak, as if the particular writer knew he would only be read by one particular kind of reader. It has the confidence of a private telegram, and therefore its brevity. People will understand, or they will not read it. They will not suppose, let us say, that the admirable novelist of old Kensington, or any of her connections, have been beating cross. Or if the name Hurst appears in a certain way, in a certain part of the paper, it will mean the cricketer, and not the very able economist. It will mean the journalist has become exclusive in the worst sense of the word. I have seen the change in the course of a very short and extremely unobservant career. I can recall the days when an editor, even a liberal editor, really took the idea of liberty for granted, when he was a censor only with reluctance, when he explained, as from one human being to another, that this or that must, after all, be blacked out. The modern editor is as unconcerned about liberty as he is concerned about libel. He creates the whole paper by selection, as a work of art is created. When he wields the black brush, he is not a censor, but a black-and-white artist. He abolishes a truth as Turner abolished a tower, because it did not suit him. He plunges a whole people in darkness, as Rembrandt would plunge a whole people in darkness to show the glint of some special steel or gold. He effaces the face of a man as Whistler effaced the face of a woman by broad, straight scratches, so that it may not interfere with the important modern matters of attitude and costume, which seem to be almost the most important modern matters. Any casual painter poising his brush over his palette between French ultramarine and Prussian blue has no cooler hesitation, has no clearer personal decision than the ordinary English editor when he decides on his journalistic picture. He will decide as calmly on French ultramontism as on French ultramarine or on Prussian bloodshed as on Prussian blue. 
Now this is the first great problem about modern journalism, and to which I shall devote two articles after the present one. Journalism is not vulgar, it is fastidious. It is not popular, it is exclusive. It gives tips, but the tips are unintelligible to you and me. It gives political advice, but the advice is palpable nonsense to you and me. It gives literary and ethical advice, but these are obviously intended for those already initiated. In another article, I hope to initiate many more. G.K. Chesterton End of Section 2